0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. Today's movie was a bit of a departure from what we do. Uh, Tales from the Hood from 1995. Tales from the Hood. Based obviously off of Tales from the Crypt. Uh, It's a playoff with that, but with an urban um, black, basically slanted towards black audiences. Uh, Craig, had you heard of this movie before?
1: I was aware it existed. Uh, I had never seen it. Um, Today was the first time I'd actually sat down to watch
0: it, but uh, no, I I hadn't seen it before. What about you? Uh, I had seen it before, actually. Uh, This is one that I had seen on the shelves in the video store, and eventually I rented it one day. I thought it was going to be a really dumb, uh, bad movie, but I don't know. I was pleasantly surprised by it. and I was also surprised to learn that the director is the director of one of my all-time favorite movies called Fear of a Black Hat. Have you ever seen that movie or heard of it either? (laughs) No, no, I've never even heard of it. Oh my gosh, I cannot say enough good things about this movie. It is the, it is rap and hip hop's answer to This Is Spinal Tap. It is clever and it is funny and it is a perfect uh, pastiche of the landscape of rap and hip hop and New Jack Swing and all of the genres that, you know, kind of came off of that in the 90s which is about when the movie came out mid to late 90s, uh, follows a fictitious rap group, and the director also uh, stars in it as uh, one of the uh, rappers in the group. It is, it is hilarious, and if you are at all a fan or even just familiar with the landscape of this music at that time, um, you will find a lot to laugh about in that movie. And uh, this movie was directed and written by him as well. Rusty Cundiff is his name. And he hasn't really done a whole lot of, of directing Uh, of films he he star he has a bit part in this movie as well quite frankly i think his performance is one of the weaker ones but uh at least uh he put this together and and it's produced by uh spike lee which i think becomes pretty obvious the more you start to watch it right uh but yeah I, i i really kind of enjoyed this movie how about you craig now you know what i gotta say um I didn't love it,
1: <laughs> but I also have to just fully acknowledge right from the beginning that I really don't think that I was the target audience for this movie. Sure, um, and, and and so that being said, um, I, I, I'm I'm reluctant to be too critical of it because I don't want to come across as culturally or racially insensitive. It, it's it's not about that. It's just uh, I, I thought that it was just okay. Now, what I will say for it is that I thought that the acting generally speaking was just fine. I mean, I I don't think there were any uh, Oscar worthy performances here or anything, but as far as the acting goes, especially in the horror genre, I thought the acting was perfectly fine. The directing and the cinematography to me just seemed a little bit meh, like Mm -hmm. uh, nothing wrong with it necessarily. Um, But but I just wasn't feeling it that much. And I found, okay, so it's an anthology film, of course. And I found all of the uh, entries interesting but i also found them all to be really predictable um and not really all that original i mean they they in fact several of them i felt like i had seen something very similar in other places before now what i will say for it is that i think that it's attempting to address some really serious issues um that are issues specifically for the black community in america um, but that of course affect all of us as a culture Um, and on that front i think by bringing attention to these issues i think that that's admirable and i appreciate that um i just as 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 a movie goes as far as entertainment goes uh i wasn't feeling it that much i didn't hate it i just i just didn't love it either
0: now let's 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 put a point of reference here, though, because you told me you were you were not looking forward to this movie. You thought it was going to be stupid. Do, how do you feel about it now? Do you still feel like it's stupid? Do you have the same impression of it that you did before we went to watch it?
1: Well, I mean, just on the in the areas I've already said, I mean, as far as originality goes um, and um, freshness, I, I just don't think that it's that great. Mm. I don't, however, think it's stupid. I don't think that it comes from a, a place of, of ignorance or, or anything like that. I, I, I think that, like I said, the, the issues that are addressed, and, and each, each entry addresses a very serious issue, um, and I think that bringing those issues to light and, and presenting them as points of discussion is a valiant effort. Um, and so I have some admiration for it on that front. And so, no, I don't think it's stupid. Um, I just wasn't particularly entertained. I wasn't bored, per se, because, fortunately, each of the entries was short enough that you really don't have time to get bored with it. Um, <laughs> but I, I just didn't think I, – I don't know. It just didn't do a whole lot for me as, 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 from an entertainment perspective.
0: Well, you know, these horror anthologies, they do follow a, a pattern. And it does – I think after you do see enough of them – it's hard to not find one that's predictable. We're we're talking about tradition that stretches back to radio, uh, when they would have uh, radio shows such as Lights Out, and uh, that was probably the most popular one, Lights Out. And there'd be these horror tales, kind of in an O. Henry type fashion, where they seem to follow one of two patterns, either... There is uh, some kind of spooky ghost type thing. uh, A person uh, comes across something supernatural and has to deal with it, but then there's like a weird twist at the end. Or we're following the point of view of a person who's terrible, and we basically see them get what's coming to them. So uh, we see a criminal do something bad, and it looks like they're going to get away with it. But then through some supernatural or ironic means, uh, they get... What's coming to them, and that's very satisfying at the end. And then that carried through to the uh, the horror comics, which were inspired uh, by the radio shows. Uh, William Gaines, who uh, was the editor at EC, uh, EC at the time, who then went on to create MAD and, and become wildly successful with that was very successful with these horror comics, uh, The Tales from the Crypt, Vault of Horror, Haunt of Fear, and then these crime suspense stories and shock suspense stories, which all of them told these tales. And so then these anthology movies are basically inspired by those in many ways. I mean, there is a literary tradition here, obviously, that I'm ignoring as well, but uh, that's... That's just the gist of it, and so if you read enough of these and you watch enough of these, you know that there's a twist coming, and they all follow kind of a similar pattern right it's really hard not to be predictable right when it comes to this i'm not I'm not trying to super defend the movie because i'm like you. I think the movie is just uh but I am. I'm going to say that oh, I, I kind of give it a bit of a pass for slightly predictable stories, as long as it puts an interesting twist on it. And I thought that the twist here of it be taking place in sort of this urban setting and having a political agenda behind it uh, was interesting enough to keep my attention.
1: Sure, and it is. Yeah, and it is unique in that way, and I appreciate that. And and I like these types of movies. You know, I like Tales from the Dark Side. I liked the series Tales from the Crypt. Um, gosh uh creep show you know the first and second one i bought i really enjoyed so it's not that i am not a fan of the genre and it does adhere to the formula of the genre um i think maybe i'm just so culturally removed from it that maybe I wasn't picking up on some of the humor. And while these issues are important to me because, you know, I am socially progressive and I am all for um, racial equality and, and, and fighting for that. And, and that it's still a problem. (laughs) I mean, this, this movie came out in 1995 and, and here today in 2017 um, it's, it's maybe been, you know, almost 30 years since we've faced the kind of, cultural and, and racial tension that we're facing in America right now, I know that this is important. You know, these are important things to talk about. So I, I, I just can't say enough that I appreciate that part of it. It's just, I don't know. Uh, I, I just didn't think that the stories were all that interesting. Sure. I, I mean- It follows the really traditional formula where you've got a frame story, and then within that frame story, you've got little episodes. Um, And the frame story here is these uh, three drug dealers, Bulldog, Stack, and Ball, um, are coming to this funeral home, Sims' funeral home, um, because apparently the director of the funeral home has found some drug cartel, uh, and they want to buy that from him.
0: Watch out back and shit. It's so funny going out Hey man. You got your gat, man? Yeah, I got my shit. Well, if a dead mother f- come f***ing with you, you kill his ass. You understand me? Yo, hold on, hold on, hold on, bulldog. I'm supposed to kill something that's already dead, man. What? Yeah, I'm supposed to kill something that's already dead. That's like killing some shit twice, man. <laughs> yeah, like some refried beans and
1: some shit. Man, I never understood that, man. Why the f*** you gonna refry some beans, man?
0: Why not just fry that shit right the first time
1: and get up? The uh, director is played by Clarence Williams III, who has been in, like, everything. I mean, (laughs) you've seen this guy everywhere. He was in uh, The Mod Squad, the original series. Um, He played uh, the big bad drug dealer in Half Baked. I remember her... Remember him specifically from uh, Purple Rain. He was the dad in Purple Rain. and Man, he, did he give a powerful performance in that movie. And and so they go into this kind of bizarre, uh, I mean, it's not super bizarre, but kind of an old-fashioned funeral parlor, and um, they start talking to this guy, and all they're interested in is getting their drugs. But he kind of stalls them, and uh, he opens up a casket where we see uh, a young black man in the coffin. And he starts telling this story of how this guy died. And that's, the setup. Uh, each story is centered around one of the people here in the funeral home who has died um, and each one tells the story. Pretty traditional. I mean, not exactly we don't have, I mean, he's kind of playing the role of the crypt keeper or the vault keeper uh, or whatever and and so actually when, when it started I was kind of excited because I really do like this type of thing. Tales from the Crypt was like my favorite show when I was a kid. That was one of the ones that I would stay up late, you know, to catch on Saturday nights and, and was always really excited about it and, and it's not that the stories were bad they weren't bad i just thought that they were a little predictable
0: yeah they weren't great right 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 <laughs> clarence's story is about police brutality what, what we basically have here is each story kind of revolves around a different political theme there's police brutality there's domestic violence there's um like racism and politics uh and then it ends with a statement on black on black crime and then of course the wrap-around mm-hmm. story. And this one's about police brutality. So it opens up, and there's some cops who've got a guy up against a car. They've pulled him over. In the meantime, there's a new guy on the beat. His name is Clarence, and uh, he's basically getting initiated by his... um white partner they're just talking about oh you know what to expect and what's going on they drive up to basically i think provide backup for these cops that have this guy up against the car and it turns out very quickly that this man is what they call a political agitator he is sounds like an attorney maybe a district attorney or something and he his name is martin morehouse and the police are saying you like uh, giving cops a bad name does this man has ratted out and prosecuted bad cops, and so they are clearly harassing him for that. Clarence comes across this. He's a little disturbed by what they're doing. He doesn't immediately recognize the guy, but they tell him, hey, go back to the car and run his plates. So when he goes back and runs the plates, he sees that not only is this Martin Morehouse, but in the system, In the police system, he is labeled as a political agitator. And, of course, his perspective on this man is totally different. He sees him as a hero for their community, as calling out crooked cops. And so right there we get (laughs) a very literal statement where the system is clearly against him. And so he comes out and he says, wait, wait, what are you guys doing? In the meantime, these guys have been beating this man basically within an inch of his life. This guy gets scared and he says, you guys can't do that and his partner there says, Shit, man, you
1: got a green dick. Those two guys have been risking their asses on the street for years. See, the fucker went for Strom's gun. Oh, shit. Oh, no. Maybe those two guys went too far tonight, maybe. It was all a mistake. But next time, it could be you. So, you know, you don't ever roll over. And you never... Rat out
0: a fellow officer, and you never, never break the code. In the meantime, these guys take uh, Martin Morehouse out to the dock in his car and basically set up what's supposed to look like some kind of death, uh, where they inject some drugs into him. They throw some drugs into his back seat. They get him in the front seat of this car. The guy whispers to him and says, "Uh, you know, you said that police are dealing the drugs, and you're right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And uh, then pushes him into the water. And the next thing that we see is Clarence tossing and turning, waking up. He doesn't seem like a very put-together man at this point. And after a short bit of time, we realize that this is a year later that some time has passed. Uh, He's haunted by this quite literally, and he's hearing voices. And he stumbles around the neighborhood, he's drinking a bottle, and he turns and he looks and he sees a very large piece of graffiti of this Martin Morehouse character uh, that is up on the wall. And he thinks that this is talking to him. And it says, bring them to me. So again, you know where this is going. He is sitting on a grave in a graveyard at the end of the night. He's called the cops to him. these same cops are like, hey, we haven't seen you in a while. Uh, How are you doing? And he starts bringing this up. And they say, why did you call us out here? And he says, I called you out here to pay our respects to this man who you guys, you know, killed a year ago. His former partner says, no, wait a minute. If we just go out to the grave and pay our respects like you want us to, will this be over? And he says, yes, that'll be it. He's like, all right, guys, let's just go do it. And as they go off to leave, one of the cops turns and says to the other cop, yeah, he's not coming back. So you know that these Mm -hmm. guys intend to off him, too, um, as they go back. Not sure quite honestly why uh, at this point again it's it's an over it's a very simplistic story yeah i mean this man's obviously <laughs> been laying low for the last year um he's not a direct threat to them why would they go through the effort of doing this this is just an effort to really paint the criminals as absolutely terrible horrible caricatured people and that might the, be a, the cops the cops yeah. yeah and that might be a big flaw of this of this movie in general actually is that some of these people are overly caricatured. And you can you can get it to a certain point, but when you start to press that envelope, it, it falls into the realm of, of silliness and ridiculousness. And I feel like this movie does that in more than one occasion. You feel like maybe you should be able to get away with it in a movie like this, but then when you're trying to make a political statement on top of it, there's a certain amount of credibility you need to lend to that in order to make your argument effective. And I think that The caricature of the police officers in this is just a little too strong in order to be effective in that manner. But anyway, we can talk about that in a minute. I'll I'll get through the rest of the story. Uh, They get to the grave.
1: Yeah, yeah, I've got stuff to say about that, too. But (laughs) yeah, go ahead and finish up the story.
0: (laughs) They get to the grave, and not only are the officers uh, like, okay, well, we're here, and blah, blah, blah. One of the officers decides to piss on this guy's grave. Pushes another one of the officers to do it, too. He's like, no, man, I don't think I'm going to. But he ends up doing it, too. And while he's doing that, a hand shoots up from the grave, grabs him, and pulls him straight down into it in a very supernatural manner, and this guy totally disappears. They're all freaking out out and then basically what happens is um what you'd expect uh, this martin morehouse has come back from the grave as this not just a zombie but a very supernatural type zombie looks real freaky and he chases them so there's a real long chase scene where he takes out all these officers one by one and the last one uh, he meets in the hood they're in an alley and i think what's interesting about this scene is that there are people here on the street out and about bums, um, folks who are just hanging out, folks who are drinking, folks who are uh, maybe homeless, whatnot. And they pay none of this any mind, what's going on. This last officer is the former partner of Clarence. The zombie, Martin, is at the end of the alley, and he makes all of these drug needles kind of levitate and shoot towards this man. And it pins him uh, to the same graffitied wall Clarence had seen earlier. And it pins him inside kind of a Christ-like pose. And then he melts into the graffiti, so that he becomes a new part of this graffiti art. And then there's a there's a tiny little tag here at the end. Clarence is face to face with this zombie Martin guy. Are you satisfied
1: now, brother? Where were you when I needed you, brother? Uh, at that point, um, he takes the fall for all the co- the other cops' murders.
0: That's right. I thought that was kind of clever, actually. And uh, they show him in a uh, straight jacket uh, in an insane asylum, where he's probably going to be for the rest of his life. And then, of course, he presumably dies, because we've seen his coffin, and we're back to the wraparound story.
1: And and that's just it. I mean, it's so easy to recap, because as far as plot is concerned, it is really thin, and it's really uh, typical of this kind of revenge tale. Um, There's really nothing new going on there. But I will say that I kind of disagree with you on the uh, stereotyping of the cops. I would kind of equate this with satire where uh, you're exaggerating for effect. You know, you're really trying to punch your point home. Are all cops like that? Certainly not. Uh, Are there bad, bad cops? Certainly. Are there bad cops that are that bad? You know, you hate to think so, but with some of the things that you see in the news, um, it, it's kind of hard to deny that there are some really nasty folks out there. Police brutality and the especially against the black community where it really seems to be black people are overrepresented when it comes to, um, having police brutality committed against them I, in 1995. That was such, you know, that was a big deal. You know, uh, I don't remember exactly when the whole Rodney King thing happened. It was before that certainly, but it was still very fresh in people's minds. And I think that we all had hoped that by the time we got to here to 2017, that that wouldn't be an issue anymore. And, and we were, you know, I think we thought we were on the road to progress um, where that wasn't going to be an issue. And for whatever horrible reason, it's still a very real issue. And so even though this movie was made over 20 years ago, it still has a lot of social and political relevance. Uh, and so even though I think that the from an inter- from a horror movie perspective, from an entertainment movie perspective purely – it wasn 't really all that entertaining, not all that exciting. I still think that um, it 's relevant and uh, it 's sad that that 's the case but but it is
0: I, I, I got to give it credit for that well and i 'm not saying it 's irrelevant and i 'm not saying I agree with you on all those points, but then how do you paint the characters? Are you going to go in a subtle way and paint them a little more realistically not Not that people don 't do police brutality i absolutely that aspect of it is one hundred percent on the target. But then um, openly bragging about it, running around and laughing, and I sort of feel like, and maybe I'm naive, <laughs> but I sort of feel like in the real world, these cops would be a little more subtle about their actions. Um, they would be a little more careful, and they wouldn't act happy-go-lucky, out in the open, no taking no care or concern, really, to cover their tracks kind of people. But you're right. Um, they're exaggerating for effect, right? Of course they're doing that. I just right. felt like the exaggeration went so far that you kind of look at it and you go, okay, I know that cops do this and I know that they do these exact things, but the manner in which they're they're making them so gleeful and happy about it and everybody's along for the ride and they're unconcerned uh, that they're going to ever be caught by it, that they're taking no caution whatsoever in what they're doing, um, was a little far-fetched. And I just, I just feel that that hurts the message, you know? I don't, tra- yeah... If you're trying to say something about you know somebody, if you paint them too much like like a like a gleeful demon, uh, and not try to contextualize their evil within the world, then um, you you run the risk of delegitimizing what you're saying because uh, that guy's crazy. No cops are actually quite like that, and then people want to dismiss it entirely. You know what I mean?
1: Right. And I don't I, I don't disagree with that. I mean, it's certainly over the top. Um, and I. I I guess all I'm saying is, you know, when Jonathan Swift wrote a modest proposal, people were not really eating Irish immigrant babies, but he was trying to make a point, you know, through exaggeration. And I think that maybe it has something to do with audience too. Yes. The portrayal of these white male cops behaving in such an obscene fashion is going to turn off certain audiences. But I think that for the target audience for this movie, that they're going to get it. They're going to get that it's an exaggeration um, and, and they're going to get the message. Now m- maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I don't know, but um, I don't want to debate about it with you anymore. Cause I want to get to the next story, which oh, yeah, is yeah. Uh, I think my, I think my favorite story from the anthology. The second one is called uh, boys do get bruises. Um, and the uh, funeral director is, introduces it by saying it's a classic case of what is and what isn't real Um, it's the difference between reality and uh, perception and this story focuses on this little boy, a little black boy named Walter um, and we see him first sitting in his bed at night and he hears a monster in his closet and we hear it too and and there's kind of some animal noises um, and the doorknob is rattling And, and then it cuts to the next day which is Walter's first day of school at this, it looks like you know some sort of private school, they're all in uniforms he gets beat up on his first day Um, And when the nurse is examining him, she notices that he has a black eye, but that it's a black eye that is not fresh. He didn't just get it. It's at least a couple days old. And so both she and this kid's teacher um, are concerned. And so the teacher talks to the kid.
0: Was it someone at home? Maybe your mother?
1: Your father? Did he do this?
0: Uh Uh-uh. He's dead. I'm sorry. Walter, if you tell me and Nurse Parchman, it'll just be our... little secret okay the monster the monster it came after my dad died
1: now for me right here from the from the get go, I knew exactly what was coming here. I mean, it yeah. was, it was really predictable <laughs> that this was going to be about domestic abuse. You know, when you say he's a monster, he came right after my dad died. I'm thinking, obviously this mom's new boyfriend has beaten this kid up. Um, and that is, uh, what it ends up being. And, and the kid even says, you know, when the guy, when the teacher is like, well, you know, monsters aren't real or something along those lines, the kid says, he said, no one would believe me. Um, and, and that, is just so standard uh, when it comes to abuse, you know, intimidation and um, telling pe- telling the victim that nobody would believe them and, and all that stuff. Um, so the next we, we ne- the, or either that night, I think we see the monster at the door again and, and we see a claw come around the, the door. So it, the suggestion is that it's an actual monster. And the next day he goes to school and he's got a new bruise uh, on his arm where it looks like he's been grabbed and and. and roughed up. Uh, At school that day, Walter draws some pictures of the monster, and he says that he was talking to the girl that sits behind him, and she told him that if um, he drew pictures of the monsters and then tore them up or burned them, that would make the monsters go away. Uh, And the teacher says, well, that's probably not the best way to deal with things. If we need to deal with things, there are other ways we can do it. Um, But Walter has also drawn a picture of the bully who had beaten him up, Tyrone, and after the teacher leaves, he, the teacher knocks the picture of Tyrone onto the floor, and Walter picks it up and crumples it up. And when the teacher goes downstairs and outside to the playground, Tyrone is getting um, loaded into an ambulance, and somebody tells the teacher that he fell down the stairs, but it's a big mystery because he like, broke like every bone in his body the teacher that night visits Walter's mom. And I didn't really particularly like the way that she was portrayed. Um, She was portrayed as being kind of slutty and aggressive. And I, that's not really a great stereotype. I don't think, but um, she gets angry at the mention of the monster when the teacher says it. And she, she brings the kid in and says, you got to stop telling these crazy stories. And sometime in there, they hear a car honk and the mom says, I got to take care of this. Uh, Just be quiet. Don't say anything. She's saying this to the teacher. And, Her, uh, what we can presume is her new boyfriend comes in, and it's there's obviously tension there. You know, he's clearly domineering. His name is Carl, and he's played by David Alan Alan Greer in a really uncharacteristic role for him. David Alan Greer is a great comedian, made a real name for himself on In Living Color, but has done tons and tons of stuff. Um, And as it turns out, the teacher speaks to him briefly, but then Carl dismisses him and Carl immediately, um, goes after Walter and starts, uh, you know, Walter's kind of huddled in his bedroom. We see the regular monster noises that we've seen when, when the monster opens the door, we see the shadow of the monster, but when he walks into frame, it's Carl and Carl starts beating up Walter. Uh, and then it escalates and he starts beating up the mom. Um, Luckily, the teacher hasn't left yet. He's still sitting out in his car. He hears all this commotion, so he goes up to the door. He comes in. He tries to intervene. Carl beats the crap out of him, kicks his teeth out, and it looks like they all maybe – getting killed here but Walter takes the picture that he drew of the monster and he starts folding it and everywhere he folds it Carl's limbs start breaking Uh, and eventually he crumbles up the paper and Carl totally gets crumbled up uh, (laughs) though he's still conscious and talking he says something like (laughs) this shit ain't over yet bitch (laughs) while he's in this crumbled up state Um, but the teacher says Walter you know what to do and he hands him the crumpled up piece of paper and Walter burns it up on the stove um, and uh, Carl gets all burnt up and then we see the reveal when it cuts back to the funeral home that uh, that's the mangled burnt body in that coffin Uh, and I liked this one because even though it was predictable, I really liked the message of this one that there are real life monsters and that maybe sometimes for kids that's the only way that they can conceptualize it, um, especially if it's somebody that's in their home who uh, in more ideal circumstances they should trust and be able to lead on uh, but who revealed this nasty side of themselves. And as far as – far, again, as far as entertainment goes, it, it's, it's a little obvious. It's totally predictable. But from a social commentary perspective, I really enjoyed this one
0: yeah I think it's about at this point in the film that you're realizing that maybe they're not as concerned with making a horror movie as much as they are social commentary. This is the one that when I remembered the movie, but before I watched it again, uh this is the one that came to my mind because the imagery was pretty powerful. This guy literally gets twisted up uh, it's it's gets yeah. comical actually in in many ways because there's no blood involved or anything but it's it's still it's still kind of weird so everything that he does to the paper quite literally happens to this man and you get to see the result and and i liked that aspect of it and that's really you know what these anthology stories have to do that's what separates them really because they all generally follow the same five or six plots it's how do you make it a little more interesting how do you put some kind of interesting twist on it Uh, But this is just another, you know, kind of revenge story. You mentioned um, the portrayal of the mom, and I feel that this story, I'm going to have the same criticism about it that I did about the the previous one in the portrayal of the mom. And that I think that he falls just a little short of, of trying to really, of really being able to hit the message home by portraying the mom as a total slut who clearly doesn't care about her child one bit. Well, right. the nice thing about this, this thing is that they don't set this in what would stereotypically be, say, a projects type scenario. You know, this isn't in right. the hood. This is a very upper class black family. The kid's going to a private school. He clearly has a very nice house. And even the monster, he, he's not some gangbanger running out, you know, dealing drugs. He is a very prof- he's a, clearly a professional who just comes home from work, you know, and he's in his suit. So in that respect I think it helps to make a really good statement. But then by the mom just totally coming on to whoever answers the door. I mean, the minute she answers the door before she even sees who it is, she's she's got her leg out, you know, in a in a seductive way and she's making eyes at this teacher like that minute. Again, Mm -hmm. I'm not saying there aren't people like this, and and I'm not saying that this isn't mom's inherent problem, which is why she can cope and put up with having a guy come in who will beat her and beat this guy. But again, it's just not that simple in real life. It it detaches you, I think, from being able to totally – Get the message behind it, and again, we, we're. I'm. I'm talking about it as a political movie, not a horror movie, because that's kind of how I feel it is. Um, as a horror movie, right, um, right, you know, <laughs> right it's it's hard to talk about this movie because it's i don't i don't think it's really a horror movie at its core um it's just a a convenient framing device for what they really want to try to say and maybe that's a fault of the movie is that it's trying so hard to say these messages that the horror part of it the entertaining the entertainment value of it suffers right
1: yeah i I totally get what you're saying and and Having heard you say that, I'll be really interested to hear what you think about this next one, the KKK comeuppance, um, because if we're talking about exaggerated stereotypes, (laughs) though they may be based in some reality, we definitely got exaggerated stereotypes all over the place in this next one. So what do you think of the third one?
0: You know, the third one actually was my favorite as a horror film. We basically open up on a guy. He's clearly a politician, but he's a politician very much in the old style Southern politician. And his name is Duke Metzger, which – You know, from the minute you hear the name Duke, the the first thing I ever Mm -hmm. think of is David Duke. And and so immediately I know that this is going to be that guy. He's a former Klansman-turned-politician who's running for office, and he's in a plantation house in the South. Uh, And he's talking with his advisor, who is black about basically how he's perceived in the media and how he's going to overcome that. And meanwhile, outside of this plantation home, there are protests going on about him in general. They're saying, how can this guy even run for office? Uh, He's so on his face, racist, and we're not going to stand for it. In the midst of this, um, one of the protesters, who is dressed interestingly... I have to say, he's got overalls on. He has kind of a, almost like a straw hat on. He's another, by the way, very recognizable actor.
1: They're gonna take care of it. They're gonna make him pay for being here.
0: Who will make him pay,
1: sir? The souls. The souls are gonna make him pay. They're gonna make him pay for being here. Miss Cobb was the keeper of the souls, and now there's no peace. There was peace, but there's no peace in the dollhouse now. The dollhouse? The dollhouse. They're gonna make him pay the dollhouse. Just an old myth around these parts. Ain't no myth. It ain't no myth. It ain't no myth. It ain't no myth.
0: And between the recounting of um, the history of the plantation house from Duke to his assistant, we basically get this story that when this house was a plantation house, the owner of the house didn't want to free his slaves um, at the emancipation. And so instead, he slaughtered them all. And as a response to this, uh, an old woman uh, crafted uh, all these dolls, a different doll to represent every slave, and somehow magically imbued the souls of the each of these slaves in these dolls. And so it's a, so well known that there's a mural of, of these women and these dolls on the wall there inside the plantation house. But nobody's ever found the dolls. And Duke says to his, par- his um, advisor there, he says, yeah, when I got here, I searched the place high and low because I thought I could make some money off of these things, off of this stupid legend but I never could find a doll. And then we get a pretty neat camera shot, I think, where it it comes down almost through the floor, and you can see under the floorboards there's a a doll sitting there. Basically, the rest of it is... It's racially charged puppet master. Yeah, it's it's exactly (laughs) what it is, right? Um, (laughs) You don't have a lot of respect for this um, advisor to him, who is black, but he's also clearly the villain here in that he's telling him uh, how to overcome all of these... Clearly and obviously legitimate criticisms. And so they have this kind of weird scene where the advisor is filming Duke with a camera. And they're up on the loft and he's backing away. And he's playing the part of a reporter and he's asking him, how would you respond? And he's backing up and they're walking as they're talking. and They're walking. I mean, you can see this coming from a mile away too. They're walking along yeah. this loft uh, and he says, no, this isn't the way you should respond. Here, you take the camera and, uh, and interview me. So not only does he hand him the camera, but then they switch positions so that he's, they're continuing to walk backwards along the same path. Duke is interviewing him, and he's giving really slick answers to these, these difficult questions. But they get a little too close to the stairway, and he trips backwards and falls down the stairs. And if you're perceptive enough, you can notice a quick shot of the doll as well as being one of the things that tripped him up right by the, the edge of the stairs. They all go to the funeral
1: and then the doll ends up in the car um, and he throws it out and then he's back in his house and he hears a knock on the door and he opens the door and we hear the pitter paddle of little feet and then it, again like I said it basically just becomes racially charged puppet master where this guy is fighting uh, these dolls and there's, <laughs> there's there's interesting imagery because like the dolls apparently are coming out of this painting there's this painting of the old voodoo woman with all of These small dolls around her, and and um, we see that the one that we've been seeing running around is is out. You know, it's it's just white you know, where he was. Um, and that one chases him around and there's some interesting, I I feel like they were trying to be symbolic. Like, um, the politician Duke at one point picks up an American flag and hits the painting, hits the old voodoo woman in the face with it. And, um, uh, and, and she starts bleeding and stuff. And, And eventually what happens is all of the dolls end up coming out and this plays out over probably five minutes. I mean, it's, it's it's not a, a really short sequence but basically eventually all the dolls come out and um then they kill him while the old, vo- old voodoo woman kind of apparates into the room and, and watches. Um, and that's the end. And, and and I thought that it was pretty heavy-handed with the imagery. Not only does he beat her with the flag post of the American flag, but then when all of the dolls um, start approaching uh, him in the final moments, he picks up the American flag and almost kind of tries to cover himself and shield himself with it. Uh, some pretty heavy-handed imagery going on there, but I think that that's par for the course for this movie. I, I don't think That their subtlety is not what they're going for here.
0: (laughs) This one, I think, is more um, apropos for today than ever because. Oh my gosh. Be careful. Big Brother is watching. (laughs) I don't know this guy, folks. <laughs> right. Whatever he says it has no affiliation with me, whatever. You know, it's just so weird. I'm watching this and I'm going, you know, back in 95, I probably thought this was a caricature, and now um, it doesn't even seem like a caricature anymore. This guy, I'm just being... Op- when people can, can nowadays be very openly and brazenly racist and say these terrible things. But the thing is, that has historic precedent. I mean, we've seen that in history you know, for a long time. You know, you go back to the speeches of Hitler, go back to the speeches of Muslims, you know, go back to any of these speeches and we have a written record of people saying some pretty terrible things, um, pretty ignorant things about people on the record. And while we think in the modern times that we've overcome this, we really haven't. But, you know, what's interesting about this is there is a subtlety here that's kind of lost in the other ones and that is that his advisor is black and that raises mm-hmm. all kinds of really interesting questions. And And I think that adding that element into it and making him a villain that gets his as well really reflects on the statements that this movie is trying to make. You know, going back to the Clarence Smith story, what you said about us not really being the target audience for this, I thought I was thinking about that a little bit more as we've been talking. And you're right, the story in the Clarence Smith one is definitely about police brutality. But the statement they're not really saying at the end of the day isn't that police police brutality is horrible and that's it. It's that police brutality happens, but how do we respond to it? And the story is really about the black partner on his first day on the job Mm -hmm. who doesn't respond appropriately to it. And he's ultimately the one who gets the worst comeuppance at the end, right? Right, Um, right, because he's complicit in it, I think, is the... Exactly. Is the message there? So he's complicit in it, um, and, and then of course, again, the Walter story. It's 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 all within the black community here. It's saying that the problem is here inside, and so I'm not saying that this story goes quite that far, but it adds that element in there with this this advisor who it could be argued we don't know the full backstory, but it could be argued maybe he's the one who helped this guy rise to power. Now he's not the mm-hmm. one who gets. He's the first one to die uh, He's obviously not the one that the story you know focuses as heavily on as he does as it does in the other two movies but And the other two stories. But again, it's there. And so there is also that element here as well. Um, Otherwise, this movie, is just fun to see this nasty guy totally get what's coming to him. Uh, But the things that he says, there will be no reparations. You will get no reparations. Right? It's it's so (laughs) thick, you know, that I feel like it gets a little ridiculous at times. But again... You know, to to integrate that element in there is interesting. I think you could also argue that the the guy who must be a gardener is that who he was, the the caretaker of the plantation, who's the protest. I guess front, I wasn't really sure who says we will get reparations. He he was dressed a lot to look like a hint of slave. You know what I mean? Uh huh. Uh-huh. Very differently from everybody else. So there was kind of that. That was again pretty bold in your face, exaggeration type stuff as well. I actually, as a horror movie, I thought this one was the best of of the of the four stories. You know, if you include the wraparound, because. And again, it's just, it's just like these anthology movies tend to go. They're not always necessarily scary. It's just fun to see how the person gets their comeuppance. In this case, it was certainly not scary about the dolls. But if you had insert it, And that's the only reason it's not scary, I think, is because we don't care about this guy. We want to see him get it. If it had right. been some a character that we cared about, the way that this is structured, how the dolls, one by one, seem to be coming off of this mural... And the next time he looks at the mural, there are more dolls missing. I think it really does a good job of building a a kind of tension in there. Um, And I think that the dolls are, uh, you know, it's another creepy doll story. The dolls are good. There's some stop motion animation in here that I think is very effective. And the dolls look scary. Um, And that scene, of course, at the end of them all approaching him at once, there's even a bit of gore as they're attacking him and tearing him apart. I think as a horror story, maybe this is the most effective of the four. Even though, again... Because he's the villain, it's not super scary.
1: Eh. I think Puppet Master did it better. I think Dolls did it better. (laughs) But... It was all right, and it was very reminiscent of those movies. And those movies were a lot of fun in the '80s. I really always liked those. Um, so you know, it was it was all right. I thought I, my favorite. I well, I already said what my favorite was, but from a technical and visual perspective, um, my favorite was the fourth story, uh, which was called Hardcore Convert. This one, the wraparound story, comes back in in every one. Uh, and what makes this one different than the others is these. Got, when um, the undertaker or the funeral director opens up the coffin the, the three guys the drug dealers from the beginning they react um, they clearly know this guy um, and this story follows uh, a guy i don't remember what his name is jerome and he's got these these killer sideburns um and he's he's a bad bad guy bad guy Um, He sees somebody driving along who he knows and apparently he's got beef with and he stops and he guns that guy down. And then some some other black guys come out of the house that the cars are parked in front of and they gun him down and then the cops show up and it turns on to this this full out shootout Jerome when he had initially been gunned down, the three guys that had gunned him down kind of stand over him. And he's kind of, he's lost a lot of blood. So he's fuzzy and their voices are kind of muffled and they're looking down at him and they're just kind of in silhouette. And, uh, uh, eventually, then the cops show up and, and those guys and run away and get shot too. And um, he is irritated that he's been saved by the effing cops, you know. Um, and so then we cut to I don't know how much longer it is later, but he has survived and he's in prison. Um, and this woman, I, I guess a doctor maybe, um, she's played by Rosalind Cash, who again, you know, a, a lot of these black actors and actresses are, are really familiar. This woman is really. familiar. She's an older lady. She's got long dreadlocks. I I remember seeing her on TV in the 80s a lot. She was on the Cosby show. She was on A Different World. She was in tons of stuff. So you're definitely going to recognize this lady. Um, She comes to him and says, how would you like to get out of prison? He's like, yeah, right. That's never going to happen. And she says, no, if you will consent to behavioral modification, then they'll let you out. And from there, it kind of turns into the last act of A Clockwork Orange. They uh, take him to this big, scary mansion on a hill. There's all kinds of weird imagery. Like when he walks in, he sees what appears to be bodies and body bags hanging up Um, like on a rack that's being rolled around and he at first gets thrown into this cage and in the cage next to him is a white supremacist and the white supremacist delivers this really interesting monologue about how it's his mission in life to cleanse the world of the black race but that there will be a few select black people who will join him in that fight and help eradicate all the rest of the black people. And then those people will be permitted to remain alive and live out their lives as slaves.
0: Do you want to be spared? Come join my army. Hey, nigga. Those guys you killed, what color were they? Huh? (laughs)
1: and that's the big political statement here it's about black on black violence when they go to do the behavior modification again from a visual standpoint this is really interesting really interesting set pieces where they're taking him kind of down into this dungeon type place with these big machines and they set him up on kind of this rack um, and they strap him in and they like put tubes in his nose and there's contraptions all over over him um and this uh rack that he's laying on starts spinning and they start bombarding him with all of this graphic imagery of both white on black violence and black on black violence and a lot of this is actual um footage and uh actual photographs from you know pre-civil war civil war area really really disturbing stuff a lot of it i had seen before uh, because i teach a lot of literature from that That period. Um, But it's really, really disturbing imagery. And after that, they take him and they put him in what they call a sensory deprivation chamber. Didn't look like a sensory deprivation chamber to me, but they strap him to this chair, and um, he can't move. And they, you know, black everything out, and he starts having visions of all of these black people that he had killed. Um, and all of these people are saying, "Why did you do that to me?" And like the first couple, he's like, "Well, you know, you never, you were always coming up short. I couldn't just let you cheat me." And then the next group, they're like. But we weren't even really the guys you were going after. And he says, well, yeah, but you had gone after other of my friends. Then there's a really poignant moment where there's a little girl, a small child. I didn't do anything. I was playing in my room and the bullet from your gun came through the wall.
0: Uh, 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 A a bullet ain't got no name on it. You, you, You was just at the wrong place at the wrong time
1: eventually the doctor appears there too. um, And she's trying to say, look at the nightmare that you are responsible for in all these people's lives. And he says, well, who's responsible for the nightmare that was my life? And she's like, you're right. Who is, is it your mom? Is it your dad? Is it the community at large? Is it your teachers? Is it the people that didn't support you? Uh, And he's like, yeah, it's all their fault. And she says, no, you have to take responsibility for the things you've done. Cain, from the Bible, was the first murderer, and he murdered his brother. How many brothers have you killed? And so then she she starts. Uh, he, he says, "Get me out of here! Get me out of here!" And she says, "There's nothing holding you here." And he realizes that he's not restrained, and he stands up and he grabs one of these apparitions and is threatening to kill her if they don't let him out. And this woman, the doctor, is saying, "You have a choice. You have a chance. I'm giving you a chance." And he just keeps saying, "I don't give a f. I, I, I don't." And he keeps screaming it and screaming it. And finally, he wakes up back on the street. Um, And as it turns out, this has all either been a dream in his final moments before dying, or it was some sort of supernatural intervention that was giving him an opportunity to change his life around, but he made the wrong choice, and so he ends up getting killed by those three guys who were standing over him which then leads us into the last uh, part of the wraparound story and reveals kind of the twist of that.
0: Right. Those three guys, they turn to the funeral director and say, why did you tell us this story? You know full well that that was us, basically. Uh, And uh, this whole time, (laughs) actually, I love this part of the movie where they keep saying, we need the shit. Where's the shit? Where's the shit? (laughs) And (laughs) the funeral director is like, don't worry. You'll get the shit. You'll be knee deep. In the shit so he takes finally takes them downstairs you want the shit i keep the shit downstairs so he takes them to the basement and uh, he says i keep it in these coffins here and he leads them to uh, this this room and there are these coffins and they're like the, the shit's in here he's like oh yeah the shit's in there and so he leads them to these coffins and each of them are standing next to one and they've got guns trained on him in the meantime and they uh, open up coffins and what they see are themselves in those coffins And it turns out that those guys got shot, too. And where are they? They're in hell. And he Mm -hmm. is the devil. And immediately flames come up, and he transforms into a devil-like figure. And they're burning up, and that's it. It's really ripped off of uh, the original Tales from the Crypt movie from the 70s, which we're going to have to do one of these days, where uh, some people find themselves uh, in a situation. It turns out that that they're dead, and they've been in hell the whole time but not before they get to hear all these stories that they have some connection with. I liked the last the last one too, but again, this is where it becomes 100% political. I mean, it's horrible just in the imagery, but it definitely pulls modern-day horror. It's like you said, they're real-life monsters. Yeah, they're real-life horrors, and it's just assaulting you in the face with it. Um, it's really disturbing to see what you know and recognize as actual photos, and in, in some cases, vi- uh, video and film footage of lynchings and people doing terrible things with them. <clears throat> but again, they're juxtaposing it with uh, sh- shots of gangbangers shooting each other to make that correlation, that it's it's happening, but now you're doing it uh, instead of the white people doing it. Mm-hmm. I guess it kind of predates Saw, in a way, too, in a lot of this very mechanical, industrial machinery that he's strapped to and, and within and without. That was something that you know was an aesthetic that sort of a Nine Inch Nails type aesthetic that uh, was yeah, yeah. becoming popular in the 90s, but we really weren't starting to see in horror films uh, up until then. So it's it's a little bit like Jacob's Ladder. Again, it's very typical type of story. Um, in these insology movies, or in many horror movies in general, where it turns out that um, there's, the person has a chance to redeem themselves, and they're going through these, these, these trials and ordeals as kind of a test. And at the end, we see whether or not that they fail. In the horror movies, they usually fail. (laughs) Right. right. Or they just die because they were going to always die.
1: Yeah, and I just think that from a technical perspective, from a cinematography perspective, um, this one was the most interesting. It was the most visually interesting. Um, There was a lot going on, uh, and I found myself really fascinated uh, with this one. I feel like I have very little – business in talking about that specific issue. Um, But it is, you know, a a significant issue. It is still a problem today. And I thought that it addressed that in a really clever way. Um, and, And like I've said from the beginning, I appreciate that and respect that. I think that it was a valiant attempt to bring attention to some of these issues that, were relevant in 1995, that are still relevant today, and in that arena, I applaud the filmmakers for that. As for a movie to sit down and watch for fun, I I don't think I'll ever watch this movie again. I'm glad to have seen it from a completist perspective, but um, it's not anything I would ever need to see again.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. We're definitely not the target audience for it, Um, and it could be argued that even the target audience uh, might find it a little heavy-handed and definitely not scary. You know that's the thing. It's, no, it's, it's not scary. <laughs> it's not scary. If it were scary, it might be a little different. Now you know there's another movie we we should see sometime uh, because I don't remember how scary it is, and it would be interesting to compare to this, which is Snoop Dogg's Tales from the Tales from the Dog Pound or something like that. Uh, which? Yeah, uh, I know what you're talking about. And I have seen it, and I remembered enjoying it a little bit more than I thought it would. It is a very different film. It's very different from this, and it's very... The filmmaking style is very different from this. It's a lot more stylish and trippy. (laughs) As you could imagine a movie by Snoop Dogg. Yeah, sure. (laughs) But but I don't remember if that movie tries so hard to be political or not. I'd be interested uh, to see it again and compare. But uh, this one yeah I, i'm with you on all points i i really agree with you but again i don't i feel it's a competently made movie it's not stupid it's not low budget it's not really dumb it just misses the mark in the entertainment value and in my opinion even from the political aspect it's it's just and you know maybe this is just my personal preference but if you're going to if you're going to try to, and again, I realize I'm not the the intended audience for this film, but again, if you're going to try to reach me with a message, it better be wrapped in a lot of entertainment, and also it better be very poignant. You know, I want to I want to really mm-hmm. feel, and the way that I'm really going to feel is I want to see people I recognize, and about the only people I could really recognize in this was that that Duke politician. You know, everybody else, yeah, Corbin understood. Benson. Seem just a little too over the top for me to recognize and really empathize or go, yeah, g- give that guy what's coming to him because I know a guy like that and he deserves that kind of stuff,
1: you know? Sure. <laughs> I do agree with you that uh, I do think it's competently made. We have certainly seen worse movies. Um, and, and in a way, I, I had kind of hoped that this would be more like that because those movies are fun in – in being able to, um, make fun of them and, 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 you know, laugh uh, about them. And I, I I just, I don't think that that's what they were going for here. So I can't say that they failed in that regard, but you know, it is what it is. I, 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 right. I, I don't, I don't think it's bad. I wouldn't, you know, tell people, Oh, don't watch it. It's not worth your time. I would just say, you know, it wasn't really my cup of tea, but you know, there's, there's certainly stuff for discussion if
0: nothing else. Yeah. Show it to your class. <laughs> and, and talk about it there. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean that you're right. It's it's way too educational to be entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Craig. All right. Thank you so much for listening to another episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and on our Facebook page where you can like us there, spread the love around, and also tell us what other movies you'd like us to see. Until that time, I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. With Two Guys and a Chainsaw.